Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. Erin Zipes wears a few different hats. She's VP Legal at Shopify, one of the country's biggest and most successful companies, and she's part of the Backbone Angels Investing Collective. But just naming those roles doesn't shed enough light on how thoughtful and insightful she is about how lawyers can be their best professional selves. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, from how she built the legal team at a company experiencing hypergrowth, to how she learned to be a lawyer who adds value rather than simply mitigating risk, to grappling with the sacred trust imparted in being responsible for managing people, to the message she would deliver to her younger self. This is her story. All right, Aaron Sykes, welcome. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. No, this is great. So look, I mean, you are VP legal and corporate secretary at Shopify, which is, you know, like Canada's largest company by market cap. Like, do you have time to do this? Like, I don't want to impinge on your life. <laughs> I'll make time, put it That's that way. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, no, this was uh, a nice break in the day. Awesome. And so, I mean, let's actually kind of drill down on that a little bit, just because I think one of the mainstays for most lawyers' professional lives is stress and sort of the demands on their time and trying to make everything work in their lives. You've got a lot going on, which I'm hoping that we'll get into. I mean, you know, not just your professional role as as counsel at, at Shopify, but you've got, you know, your your angel investing fund on the side. How do you make it all work? One day at a time. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a bad answer, but it's, it's the truth. I think, um, you know, early in my career, when I started in Toronto on Bay Street, high stress, and I had much less resilience. So just anything that happened would send me into a tailspin. And it was sort of a muscle that I developed over time of just getting better at handling the stress and the pressure and the sort of conflicting, everything's on fire, what do you go to first? But then also just realizing that, okay, nothing's bested me yet. I've handled everything that has been thrown at me and I've survived it and have thrived. And so that sort of experience of just, you know, I've gotten through everything that's been thrown at me so far gave me the confidence to sort of take on more and more. And something we say a lot at Shopify is, you know, being comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is such an aphorism, but it's so true. And I know I spent the first few months or if I'm honest, years at Shopify, just waiting for things to calm down. Oh, things will be better once we get through the IPO. And then I can, you know, catch my breath or, okay, once we get through this crisis or that follow-on offering or, you know, our year-end and eventually I, you know, longer than I care to admit, I wised up and sort of said, no, this is just what my life is like. And so I can just, you know, get more comfortable with it being like this, or I'm going to have an ulcer. Right. <laughs> Let's avoid ulcers. So that's, <laughs> I mean, that's interesting. I mean, there's so many interesting things about your story. So let's, why don't we start sort of with what you, you mentioned there. So you started in private practice. What ultimately led you to move in-house? I think in private practice, um, which I loved, you know, I loved working with folks practicing at the top of their game, working on just cutting edge, big deals. I think what I didn't love about it was I very quickly came to the realization that I wasn't going to be very good at it because what the job really was, was making hours and I didn't want to make a lot of hours. So, you know, my clients loved me because I would do the work, I would do it well, and I would do it quickly. 
but I wasn't ever going to bill as many hours as the guy in the office next to me who was just grinding it out and plotting and sort of, he was the better lawyer in that context because he made more hours than me. You know, it didn't matter that our deal flow was the same, that my clients love me, that the work was excellent. I didn't make as many hours and we were in the hours making business. And for me, I've come to realize over time, one of my values is efficiency. And that was just so at odds with my personal value of efficiency. And so I figured out that the biggest hack there was if you move in-house, you don't have to track your hours. You can spend as long as you need to on certain things. And if you get the work done sooner because you're efficient, that's okay. You know, you've, you've done a good job. Let's pull on that thread a little bit, because I know a lot of our listeners here are going to be people with a view sort of either in private practice or in-house. That mindset of recognizing that sort of what law firms do in part, some of them too much so, uh, is generate sort of hours and, and sort of generate time that's, that they get paid for. How has that impacted how you as an in-house counsel deal with external counsel? Well, I think, I mean, it'll sound like I'm contradicting myself, and maybe I am, but actually don't over-rotate on fixed fee or alternative fee arrangements because I understand, you know, very well because I was in that position that there is almost never such thing as a vanilla transaction or cookie cutter, you know, issue. And so I understand that sometimes things take the time that they take and I feel like the house always wins. So I feel like if I push too hard on asking for discounts or pushing too hard on fees or asking for fixed fees or something, I feel like when that cap gets hit, I'm going to pay for it in other ways because there will be more work that needs to get done and issues will be missed. Um, people won't dig in as much on the things that they need to because they'll be so careful. So it sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth and maybe I am, but I think as much as I didn't love having to make hours, I'm very much sympathetic to the fact that for the most part, that really is the way the profession works and has to work. And so in my mind, it's a long-term relationship. And, you know, from time to time, I'll look at a bill and I'm like, oh, you know, that seems kind of high. I can't believe they spent three hours on that. It was just a quick question. But really in my mind, it, it's a long-term relationship. And I feel like if I nickel and dime counsel, I will pay for that in, in, in other ways. I think from my point of view, because I do take that view, the very few times in my career where I have sort of called up external counsel and said, you know, I want to talk to you about your bill. I have a few questions. I think maybe what they don't appreciate is that's like DEFCON 5 for me. That's like, I'm going to fire you and we are having this conversation. And I think they're probably so used to other in-house clients kind of doing that with every bill that they don't realize like if we're talking about it, we have a problem. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of, I, I'm glad you articulated it that way. I'm kind of of the same mind in the sense that I think the billable hour kind of gets a lot of undeserved grief. And the most important thing is not like the fee mechanism or the amount on the bill. It's really the relationship, right? Like if you have a good relationship between internal and external counsel, that's like the number's never going to be the problem, right? Like you, and no lawyer that I know, or, and certainly I've never sent out sort of like a straight time bill where you just sort of like, there's a number that was on the docket and then you just kind of press print on the invoice and it goes out. Like everything sort of gets massaged and, and looked at and, and hopefully critically assessed. And so that 
ultimately, as you sort of alluded to, like the invoice that hits your desk, it shouldn't be a, a surprise or be a problem. Like it should have been dealt with before that, that invoice ever got sent out. So yeah, I think that's right. I totally agree. Yeah. So the move in house, I mean, once you ended up at Shopify, the Shopify that you ended up at looked quite a bit different than the Shopify that you're at today. So did you know what you were getting into when you started there? I thought I did. I didn't in two ways. I think, you know, when you move in house, you realize it's going to be a very different working environment. You know, you're going to be a cost center and not a revenue generator. You're going to have to ingratiate yourself to your clients who may not always want to come to you. I think moving in-house to Shopify, I had an inkling that it would be like that, but 10x, that that it was going to be very high-paced, you know, move fast and break things, ask forgiveness, not permission, all the things lawyers love to hear from their clients. I had an inkling of that. I thought I knew what I was in for. It was even more so than that. So I, it definitely was even more. And then you know, the Shopify of then and the Shopify of today, no, I, I don't know that anyone could have predicted. I mean, it was beyond anyone's, I think, wildest dreams. Yeah, definitely didn't know what I was getting into. Right. But now but has no that... complaints. Right. <laughs> it's worked out okay for everybody. It worked out okay. <laughs> and so what did that look like? Like, I'd, I'd love to sort of get inside your head when you kind of find out, oh, like we're doing an IPO or like, oh, we're going from X number of employees to, you know, X cubed number of employees. What is that as an in-house counsel, what kind of stresses and, and pressures are you dealing with when those scenarios present themselves? I think it is the cliche, like we were building the airplane as we were flying it. <laughs> and so every year, every quarter, but even every week or every day, I would have my goals. I would have my to-do list of the things that I wanted to do, the things I wanted to build for the long-term, put in place, get more ahead of, work more on. And every day I would just get blown to hell with kind of everything that was happening. And I mean, it's really hard on, on kind of your self-esteem, your self-concept when you, you know, I would look back at like the first page of my notebook from the first day of my like initial, oh, here's what I want to do. And it's like, I haven't even gotten to that in how many years have I been here? And, and, you know, it was sort of that balance of reminding myself and the team of maybe some days keeping our heads above water was a win. And even that was taking quite a lot out of us and then sort of, but not letting ourselves off the hook too much with, okay, we still do need to build for the long-term and try to stay ahead of things, even in this incredibly fast moving environment. So it took me longer than I'd like to admit to sort of really focus on hiring and scaling the team. Like initially I was in that paradigm of I'm, I'm an individual contributor. So if there's more work to be done, I will work harder or more efficiently. It took me a while to figure out, like, I am not the solution here. Like I need to scale myself and scale processes and build out a team. And, and that's the only way you can keep up with exponential growth. Right. And so that's really interesting because I, I think that, I mean, look, I know I struggle with that. Like I am a terrible delegator, but I think lawyers generally seem to struggle with that. And, and even just the concept of having a team or building a team, I think would pose a lot of challenges for a lot of lawyers. It's something that you've done successfully, obviously. How, how did you learn to do that? Like, were you, did you, were there outside resources or was it just sort of like a process of, of, you know, trial and error, or were there other teams within the, in the organization that you could look to for guidance? How did that all play out? That's a great question. I think it was something I had to figure out on my own, but also 
had other colleagues even within the legal team that were going through the exact same thing that we could sort of look to each other of best practices and what do you look for and how do you know when it's time to add someone? And, and certainly, I mean, every team at the company was going through the same thing and, and oftentimes was further ahead than us. I mean, legal team is always kind of, in my experience, the smallest team. And so I could say, oh, that's what that colleague was telling me about, you know, a year ago. Okay, I see. And so they were sort of the canary in the coal mine. And I could, you know, go to them with ask for, you know, what did you look for? How did you know when it was time to hire? How do you know if you're adding the right people? How do you onboard them? All those things. So ultimately, I think you have to figure it out for yourself. But I certainly had so many folks that were going through the exact same thing, you know, even ahead of me that, that could pave the way and give me that advice and guidance. Nice. I worked a little bit with you and, and with members of your team. I and mean, one sense that I get in dealing with Shopify is it runs pretty well. And particularly in terms of the interface between like the business units and legal. And I know when you sort of started describing working at Shopify or, or your career change there, you sort of use that description of, oh, well, you know, legal is kind of a cost center. But that the sense that I get in, in dealing with folks from Shopify is they don't view legal as a, a sort of an impediment. They kind of view legal as an integral part of the team and, and like something that helps facilitate things. I think that's an accomplishment, right? Like, I don't think that's a very common kind of assessment or sentiment of in-house teams at a lot of organizations. How have you managed to pull that off, I guess? Like, how do you get your, your the people on the other, in the other units and the other verticals that you're working with, how do you get them to like you so much? Yeah, it honestly, I will toot my own horn. It is an accomplishment. It's it's one of the things that I'm proudest of. It is not easy. And I think it really is a big part of the secret sauce of, of how we were able to be successful as a legal team at Shopify. I think for me, the way I approach it and then the lessons that I tried to impart to the team is just, first of all, sort of if, if we are hiring folks that come straight from a firm, just making sure they understand how much the role has changed and you have immediately overnight gone from being the revenue generator and the sun around which everything revolves to a cost center. And so, you know, govern yourself accordingly, right? Um, the, the world doesn't revolve around you anymore. We have a very service oriented culture on the legal team. So something that we look for when we hire people is, do you like helping people? Is that part of your self-image? Is that something that motivates you of being part of a team, a support? There's very little that we do on the legal team that is solely generated by in and of itself for the legal team. We're a support function. And so we look for folks that are comfortable with that. We try to be extremely service-oriented, extremely reactive, keep our response times down, and just have as light a touch and as low a lift as possible. So we're always trying to think of ways of how can we get the information we need from our clients in a way that is easy for them? How can we be so easy to deal with? And I think one of the things that I enjoy the most about working in-house is I think sort of the special sauce of why you know we can be so successful is when we give that value add of like, I'm not just the stamp you needed to get so you could do your project, but I'm kind of the sixth man on your team where I'm saying, oh, okay, I, I get that you want to do it this way, but if you did it this other you know, way, I think you'd actually be happier anyways. And I know I'll sleep better at night because we've mitigated some risk on my end, but I actually think it's better for you anyways, or, or even, okay, I'm taking my legal hat off. This isn't a legal comment, so take it or leave it. But I know your colleagues in this other area that I'm helping with are working on something similar and here's how they've solved it. So why don't you think about it this way? 
I mean, legal can provide so much more value add than just mitigating risk, which in and of itself is amazing. Um, you know, getting agreements done, drafting agreements, helping with negotiations. But oftentimes when an organization gets as big as Shopify has, people get siloed and it's really hard for them to stay aligned. And legal so often is one of the few functions that has kind of an overview because of the work we do. We can often serve as the connective tissue and sort of put people together. Oh, that team did that a couple of years ago. You should talk to them. Or, oh, you guys are solving the problem in a different way. You need to talk to this team. Or this this is going to affect another plan that's already in place. We need to align the two. So we really lean into that. And I mean, being good lawyers, getting the work done is, is table stakes. Like we really try to focus on what are all the other ways we can add value. And I think that's a large part of the reason why I think, I hope our clients want to come to us. They, they, they like to work with us because we make their work better. I mean, what could be better than that, right? On that note that you you struck there about you guys being viewed internally as kind of a like a value add to the like the projects and, and to the whole process that's ongoing. Did that kind of develop organically or did you have sort of an aha moment where you were like, oh, like I have to switch what I've been doing so that I'm not just like legal that, you know, everybody hates calling, but you know, there was like an incident or or just sort of an inflection point where you reflected on it and you were like, oh, like this is how we should do it. I think the aha moment for me happened before I worked at Shopify when I was in an in-house role at a smaller company uh, and I was in a meeting and there was like a point that was so obvious to me that it felt almost insulting to bring it up. But the longer the meeting went on, the more I was like, no, maybe, maybe they should hear this. Like that they seem to be missing something that I think would be really helpful. And I sort of screwed up all my courage and said, look, guys, I'm so sorry. This isn't a legal point. And excuse me if it's a dumb thing to say, but, and I sort of made my point and they looked at me like I was Stephen Hawking, right? Like just the angel saying, and it was so helpful to them. And it, it sort of gave me the confidence. I mean, obviously not everything I say is, is, is going to be brilliant, but it gave me the confidence to, to not just stay in my legal lane and to realize over time that so often our legal training is such that we can really see issues in a way that sometimes the business folks can't, but we're so good at framing issues and parsing issues that a lot of the value we can bring isn't in making a decision, but it's helping them think about how to make the decision and what are the criteria and what are the mitigating factors. And so I think that's where we can add a lot of value. And I think that's realizations that I've sort of come to over time. But I definitely remember that aha moment where it was like, oh, sometimes I have insights and it's okay to share them. I don't just have to stay in the little lawyer box. And and that can sort of be a secret weapon for why they'll invite me to the meeting or want me around the table, even you know before it gets to the point of the contract or the negotiation. Amazing. Just on the topic there of legal training, because I think this is sort of a perennial issue in the legal community. I think that law schools often catch a lot of grief for insufficiently preparing people for practice or ignoring practice in favor of theory. I, I think sometimes they're unfairly maligned. Like I think they've done a lot over, say, the last like 15, 20 years to change how they deliver legal education. But I'd love to get your thoughts in terms of the legal training that you got that has made you effective did you, to what extent was that imparted when you were in law school versus being in private practice versus you just kind of have to be in-house for a while to figure these things out? Oh, I love that. I think a combination of everything. I think for me, I, I did a Bachelor of Commerce. I went to business school before law school and I went to McGill for law school, which was so difficult for me, but was the perfect 
thing for me because I went from being so pragmatic and focused on what's the answer and right up before a page case to at McGill where we would just have these long discourses about a dissent or about the philosophy behind something. And I was like, sorry, what's the answer? And they're like, well, who cares? Like, and so it was it was awful. My marks in first year were not good. The, the Sejep kids that were 18 were kicking my ass, but it, it was the best thing for me because it allowed me to sort of shift my way of thinking. And I think exactly what law school is meant to be is it taught me how to think like a lawyer. And that those maybe probably weren't skills that I would have had. I, I thought I thought like a lawyer. I thought I was very pragmatic and wanted to know the answer. And McGill really stretched me to think about how to think about things and be very disciplined in my thinking. All the cliches about how to think like a lawyer. I, I do think, and, and I mean, I'm a lawyer that loves being a lawyer. I have tremendous respect for the profession. I love it. So I hope this isn't insulting, but it's a trade and you learn it by doing it. And so I couldn't have asked for anything more from my legal education at all. But no, I, I didn't learn how to be a lawyer in law school, I learned how to think like a lawyer and start to develop those skills. It's a trade. And so I learned it on the job. I don't, I don't know how else you can learn it. I learned it by seeing the markups that I would get back from the partners on the stuff I was working on, hearing them on their calls, having, you know, having my own calls and afterwards being like, okay, what went well, what didn't, what am I going to do different next time? A lot of what not to do. A lot of times I would observe others and say, well, I'm not going to do that. But, but also a lot of what to do. And I think that developed over time of just watching and, you know, trying to be as self-aware as possible and trying to give myself feedback, uh, trying to take all the feedback I could that was offered to me from mentors, from, from the partners and senior associates that I worked with from watching them in action. And then same thing when I made the transition to in-house, kind of doing the same thing and sort of trying to be very cognizant of the fact of, what worked for me at the firm is not going to work for me here. So how do I need to adjust? What is the lawyer that I have to be in-house and for this particular client, for, for the company that I'm currently working at? So I'm always trying to put myself in that context of I am who I am. I have the experiences and the knowledge that I have. But in every single situation that I put myself into, who am I working with and what is who is the lawyer that they need? Amazing. So it's interesting in hearing you answer these questions, what I'm picking up on a lot is th there's a real sort of intentionality to how you sort of practice and, and how you kind of carry out your professional life in the sense, like, so you mentioned before, like you have, you'd had notebooks where you had sort of listed goals and you're sort of thinking about things, you know, in a substantive way. So you're not simply reacting to all these various stimuli that are being thrown at you, like you're sort of taking the time to reflect on things and think about how to be a better lawyer, which is a, a great message. I mean, it's something I, I think, frankly, I've struggled with a lot of the time, but in the last few years, as I've tried to be a little more proactive in terms of mentoring younger lawyers, that's something that I've been trying to convey to them that like, you really do have to be sort of purposeful about being a good lawyer. Right. Like other, like if you do it sort of in an unreflective way and in a, in a reactive way, you're just going to, you, you may be a totally fine lawyer. Like you may be completely competent. You may deliver good service, but you're never going to hit that next level of really sort of innovating or, or accomplishing, you know, interesting and impressive things for yourself or for your client. Do you, I mean, is that part of, do you have sort of like a ritual of that? Like, do you kind of take stock like every you know, month or a couple of months or, or once a year and look back and see sort of how things are going and what you can, what you've, what goals you've missed and what you, you want to hit and how you're going to hit them? 
Gosh, that sounds so lovely. I wish I could say I did. <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, maybe I probably should. I'm gonna. I'm gonna try to integrate that. No, I think it came from almost a neurotic place initially, where one of the biggest gifts I got very early on in my career was. It was late one night. I was working on something with a, a slightly more senior associate, and, and we were just talking. And I sort of said offhand, like, "Oh, I wonder what partner X thinks of me." And he laughed at me and he's like, Aaron, partner X does not think about you. And it was so earth shattering and world shaking and just so put into context of like, of course, the partner doesn't think about me. They have all their stresses. They're worried about, you know, the client and their family. And it was such a gift because I realized early on, you know, partners are terrible managers. Partners are terrible at getting feedback. And, and of course, there's wonderful exceptions to that, but just as a whole, we're, we're really bad at it. And, you know, everyone, you know, is, has their own constellation of worries and stresses. And so very early on, I just realized like, I need to worry about me, which is great. I'm neurotic. I'm going to worry about me anyways, but like also was kind of freeing of like, probably they aren't really worrying about me and no news is good news. So kind of realized that I likely wasn't going to get all that much feedback. And so the only way I was going to get better, one of the only ways I was going to get better was if I could give myself feedback or, or be very attuned and self-aware and try to just pull the feedback, even if it wasn't delivered uh, on its face as such. And so, yeah, I it was really a gift because I think that is what contributed to me succeeding is just knowing early on that I was going to have to give myself feedback. But I think it's I'm probably almost too self-reflective and in my head. So definitely no kind of weekly or monthly or quarterly check-ins. But I do think a bit more like a pendulum where, okay, uh, you know, I really lean to, need to lean more into the management side of things. You know, I, you know, there's there's a couple of issues there. That's something I need to focus on in the next little while. And then you sort of realize a couple of weeks later, like, oh, okay, that's going okay, but I really need to lean more in. We need to get more onto hiring or we need to get more onto systems building. The team is is overworked. So I think it's more of just a pendulum of kind of where do you need to direct some attention and where are you going to direct that attention? But things change so quickly that I think even if I had the discipline of having goals, I mean, they'd be blown out of the water the next business day. <laughs> One of the joys of working at a, a company that's as sort of fast moving as you guys are. Just to pick up on that point about feedback, because I think law firms in particular are sort of notoriously bad at providing feedback to younger lawyers. And, you know, there's kind of formal processes in place, but they tend to be quite syncopated. Like you sort of, you know, like maybe there's a semi-annual sort of review process if you're lucky. Otherwise it's kind of an annual review process and everybody's like, oh, like, yeah, I can't really remember what we did eight months ago, but you're doing fine. So just to keep doing what you're doing. The sense that I get is that companies like yours are much better at providing feedback just sort of generally, right? Like the, the sort of HR kind of lens the management of people is, is much more finely tuned in, in corporations than it is, particularly public corporations, than it is at law firms. Does that sort of feedback cycle process apply to your legal team? Like, do you guys employ those processes? And does that, I mean, is that better than what we're doing at law firms, do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I certainly hope so. I mean, I think what I'll speak to is kind of the ideal. And I guess I just hope that I am upholding that and living to that. But I think for me, you know, as a lawyer, I didn't ever really see myself as a leader, as a manager. And at, at Shopify, as I sort of grew into that role, whether I wanted to or not, I mean, it's such a sacred trust, right? Like what could be more important than being responsible for another person's 
career. And so often, you know, if we have a bad day, it's like you go home and you grumble about your boss to your significant other. And it's like that realization of, oh my God, now there's how many people that are maybe going home and complaining about me. And so for me, it's just would, you know, very early on realize like, I would never want to come to a point where it was time for performance, performance eval, and would have to sit down and deliver something that was a surprise to someone, right? Like, like I just couldn't think of anything more awful, couldn't think of a way that I could fail more than to have that come as a surprise to someone. And because we were moving so quickly and sort of all needed to level up and we're all learning similar lessons at the same time and struggling with similar things, I do think we have a culture of radical candor, like typical you know, tech bro speak, but it's, it's one of the things that I really do buy into of we are moving so quickly and it's so hard to find good people. If you are not giving people honest and regular feedback, you're, you're doing them a great disservice and, and, you know, you're not doing your job as a lead. And so it's something that I've really tried to lean into. And, you know, as a woman, it's hard to have tough conversations. It's, it's, I don't like it when people don't like me. I like it when things are great. And so it was something that was difficult for me to get used to the idea that it's your job to have these conversations. And eventually I think, you know, after reading Radical Candor, I got to a place where it's like, it's actually kinder to the person to have these conversations. It's crueler to just tally it up in your head and then eventually be like, this isn't working out. We have to part ways. I've seen firsthand people really can grow and change and evolve. And oftentimes there is such an absence of feedback. And if you take the time to deliver feedback with care, people really respond to it. I mean, everybody wants to be good at their job. Nobody wants to suck, right? And so when you develop that trust and people realize that like, you know, nobody wants them to succeed more than you, it can be really beneficial. And I think hopefully you get to a place where it can sort of flow both ways, where your team trusts you enough that they can give you feedback and ask you for what they need or what they want differently or, or things they see. I mean, I think that would just be the ideal state. And it, it's one that I strive for. Nice. So let's talk about your leadership roles outside of Shopify for a second. So this is one of the things which I find absolutely fascinating. I mean, I find a lot of things fascinating about your career, but I find this maybe the most fascinating. So Backbone Angels. Tell listeners what that is and, and why it looks the way that it looks and, and what you all are doing over there. Yeah. Another thing that was just never supposed to happen for me. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I remember in law school learning about angel investors and I was like, oh, I'll be the lawyer that helps angel investors. Never in a million years did I think I would be an angel investor. But um, Backbone started, uh, there was 10 of us um, at the time. We were all at Shopify. Now now many are, are starting to, to move on to other things. It started as just like friends and kind of informal support group of 10 women of, you know, have a coffee or, or more, more often wine and sort of talk about how you're navigating the different challenges and many of the things we talked about and the hyper growth and hiring. And eventually we started talking about deal flow you know, all the guys were starting to angel invest. A lot of them had, had done it even before they came to Shopify. Some of us were starting to dip our toes in it. You know, the others were, were very curious. So we just started to talk about it more of, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, kicking the tires on this company. Oh, they're, you know, an HR play. Britt, can you, can you look into it? Tell me what you think. You're the expert on that. And in the group, I think I'm the, the oldest. I'm the grizzled Gen X skeptic. And, and the rest of the group is, they just, you know, the sky's the limit. And so really we started to talk about maybe a fund and I'm the one that was kind of like, okay, guys, that's like next level. I don't think we're quite there yet. Although certainly one day I think we easily could. And so we realized that just the easiest and scrappiest thing we could do would be just an angel collective, you know, 10 independent folks 
up to 10 different lines on the cap table, but that we would share deal flow um, and that the collective brand would be strong enough that we thought, you know, we would hope that we would bring in some deal flow and man, we were wrong about that. We brought in a lot of <laughs> deal flow. We could share the diligence, we could share the expertise. And then even if only one or some of us decided to invest, we would still have that power of, oh, do you need to speak to a data person? Okay, I'll hook you up with Solmaz, she can help you out. Of just that power of, of all the expertise that we have, both from our individual disciplines and our day jobs, but also just the collective wisdom of everything we've seen in the years we've been at Shopify. Like we basically all have PhDs in, in scaling, in culture, in hypergrowth. And you know, what I'm coming to realize is that's really helpful to a lot of founders. It's it's something that you know most folks aren't privileged to live through. And is Backbone Angels, and forgive my ignorance on this point, but are you sort of focused on a particular geographic region or like, are you looking across Canada or are there, I mean, there's 10 of you, so it's, and you've mentioned a pretty high deal flow. So it sounds like you've got a lot of different potential verticals and, and sectors of the economy there and play there. But are, is that like, did you sort of look at whatever comes in? Do people approach you or are you guys actively out there looking? How does that sort of process play out? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think really our investment thesis is just women and non-binary founders. And so I think each of us beyond that take a slightly different view. So for me personally, you know, I'm, I'm more comfortable with stuff that's closer to home, um, you know, in Canada or even ideally closer to, to sort of East coast, but um, no, definitely there's others that have put money in, in, in you know, uh, different geographies. Um, really the main thesis is just women and non-binary founders with a particular emphasis on women of color. But beyond that, I'd say, I think maybe there's a slight bias or at least personally towards SaaS, just because it's what we know and there is that potential for such growth. But but even then, we've gotten really interesting inbounds in, in a range of sectors. And if something catches someone's eye, we're not in it to lose money, but we're not in it necessarily to make money. So if something is interesting and if we think there's value there, we can add value. It's something we look into. In terms of deal flow, we've just been so overwhelmed in the best way possible. So we haven't had to go out too much. Like people hear about us, they look on the website, they send us their decks, or oftentimes it's like a friend of a friend where I'll be talking to someone about something else. And they'll say, oh, by the way, I know a founder. Can I send them your way? So it was one of the things that I was most worried about is that we would sort of set this all up and then not have any deal flow, but it has not been a problem so far. It's just been embarrassment of riches. Amazing. And is there, I mean, just given the different histories and regulatory environments and kind of cultural uh, realities, does Canadian angel investing look different than like American angel investing? Like, are there, are there different sort of communities of angel investors in Canada? How does that, how do you relate to other angel investors in, out there in the world? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm definitely probably not well-placed to, to speak intelligently that I can only speak to my experience. I think there's so many kind of Canada-focused initiatives and there are so many different groups. I think oftentimes there's the realization that starts with the American model of what has been successful there and what are folks doing there. I think that's often the case. I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, it is the example to follow. It seems to me most angels that I know from the Shopify community are not focused necessarily on Canada. Like it really seems like they will follow founders and follow ideas. Which just seems terrifying to me. Like as soon as cross-border things start coming into play, like I'm just like, I don't, what are you people doing? That sounds it's like, like it's madness. So funny <laughs> to me I think that's why I think that's why lawyers 
generally would make terrible founders because right. like <laughs> something like that comes up. I just think of all the ways it could go wrong or all the ways like, Oh, but what about tax? And I don't know yeah. about that. And like, I just see all, all my other colleagues just be like, who cares? It'll be fine. We'll figure right. it out. We'll figure and, it out. And, and honestly they do. So I think that's the reason why I may, generally lawyers don't make the best founders. Cause we just think of all the ways things could go wrong and, and they just think of all the ways it could go right. Um, Amazing. Yeah. yeah. We, quite, definitely I'm quite jealous I, of their optimism. A hundred percent. There's so many days I wish I could just like somehow take off the lawyer, hat. like figure out how it's a hat and then figure out how to take it off. But it just life just doesn't sort of play itself out like that. You've had what seems like, you know, an incredible career. If you, and I feel like a lot of lawyers, myself included, they started in law school, certainly, or in the early years of their career from a position of, I don't know if vulnerability is the right word, but a, a like we're almost, we start sort of like in a defensive crouch. Like we're kind of scared of everything and we don't know what we're doing. And, <laughs> and we think we're going to screw a lot of things up and everything's going to go wrong. If you could communicate with the younger Aaron's, like whether it's, whether it's Aaron in law school or, or Aaron in, you know, her second year after call, what message would you deliver to that Aaron? Oh, that's a good one. I think the fear and the self-doubt and, and the self-reflection is not all bad because I think it's kept me sharp. So I think I would tell her not to lose all of that, but to loosen up somewhat. At the end of the day, I think so much of the work we do is so important and the margin for error is so thin. But in the fullness of time, you come to realize that the intersection of where things actually go sideways in reality and then where you might have made a mistake in the work that you've done underpinning that, that's a really small Venn diagram. And I think we all know the horror stories of the missed comma that cost millions, but like those are so the exception. And the reality is that I think the vast majority, if not all of the actual work product I've done has never been tested. It could be riddled with theirs. I mean, I don't think it is, but it sort of didn't matter. And, and the real work that I did was more and the shepherding of it and the advice I gave in, in the negotiations. And if I missed a comma, I think it's lost to history and, and Knockwood will never be litigated over. So I think we are a profession that is focused on details. And I think to not be focused on those details would be wrong, but I think I just wouldn't sweat them and agonize over them as much. You know, do the work, review it, finish the draft. And then you got to let it go. It's something that I often will tell the team now. And I guess I wish I had been smart enough to tell myself earlier of so often lawyers, particularly in-house lawyers, we're kind of the sin eaters of the place where because we think it's our job to mitigate risk, even once the business decides to go forward with something and they fully understand the risk they've taken on, we still carry that worry of, oh God, but what if it goes wrong? And you know, we, we still really carry that with us. And what I tell my team is it's your job to make sure that they understand what they're taking on. It's your job to do everything you can to mitigate that. But then once that decision has been made, you got to let it go. And look, the reality is if it manifests, you and I both know that we're the ones that are going to have to clean it up, but we sort of can't worry about it till then, you know, worry about it until it's done. And then you got to let it go and go on to the next thing. And you know, I think if nothing ever came back to bite us, if, if nothing ever went sideways, probably spending too long on things, right? We shouldn't be batting a thousand. And certain things, of course, the margin for error is zero and you do have to go through it with a fine tooth comb. 
But a lot of what we do, if it never goes sideways or comebacks to bite us, we're spending too long on it. And that's not good value. It's not the right use of our time. So I think I would deliver that sort of keep some of the high bar and attention to detail and, and self critique, but, but also loosen up a bit and it's all going to be okay. I think that's a, that's a fantastic message. If we could like, sort of like, if I can edit that down and then send it out to a whole bunch of law students, I a hundred percent would. You've been incredibly <laughs> generous with your time. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been fantastic. I really look forward to seeing what Shopify continues to accomplish and what you yourself continue to accomplish. So thanks again. Oh, thank you so much. This was really fun. This was great. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.